0: Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Rules of engagement um, is actually a term, it's a military uh, law enforcement term, uh, that uh, is decided whenever um, uh, there's a conflict that needs to be engaged in and so rules of engagement, if you're if you if, uh, if you're familiar with the term, is like whether you just stand and observe or whether you can engage, whether you can engage with force. And of course, then if it escalates, the highest would be engaging with with um, deadly force. And, and so it's how do you engage? And what we're going to do today and next week is go through eight principles of Christian political engagement. And if you want the... Uh, the full version of this, go to uh, forthehealth.net. Forthehealth.net, it's actually um, been developed by the National Association of Evangelicals, which is an organization that's been around since the early 40s. And this, uh, for the health, this, these eight principles were actually developed almost 20 years ago. Uh, To help Christians know what are the the primary principles that we should be concerned about when engaging in political discussions, in deciding who to vote, I just want to clarify the term evangelical is a theological distinction and not a political distinction. It has been hijacked by people and made into a political uh, word, but it is not a term That it it means has anything really to do with politics, and you can be uh, in any party or independent, and either be uh, evangelical in your beliefs or not evangelical. And I'm I'm not going to stand here and uh, um, explain to you what evangelical uh, is. Uh, That's what Google's for. So, (laughs) and if you go to this website and you click on the. The, the, a few clicks through, it'll take you to the National Association of Evangelicals. And uh, they actually, um, part of the National Association of Evangelicals, one of their principles is to resist being co-opted by political agendas. To resist being co-opted by political agendas is the official stance of the National Organization of Evangelicals. And to pursue rather the breadth of, uh, of commandments, that Jesus displayed and scriptures teach. All right, so these eight principles uh, we're going to share are to inform us as we pray, as we vote, and as we engage in our communities and and with friends and and, and coworkers in discussing the issues of our day. Now, obviously, no candidate, no party um, is uh, uh, perfectly or even closely (laughs) encapsulates these principles, but these principles are principles that uh, Christian scholars and and uh, and spiritual leaders have have worked on and honed as 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 eight of the primary ones that should be steering. And just so you know, the uh, uh, Association of Evangelicals um, is supported by over forty-five thousand churches. All right, so millions of Christians uh, are are supporting this and and it's been around for for like i said since the 40s and so these principles can help us as we engage in the discussions as we struggle with the ideas and the concepts you know society is pulled in many different directions and so we need to turn to scriptures these are scripturally based principles all right number 1 is protecting re- oops skip through that protecting religious freedom and liberty of conscience all right, so this is one of the primary principles uh, that we find, and, and as Christians, we need to carry into and, and allow to influence our political viewpoints and how we engage in our society. God ordained 2 coexisting two coexisting institutions, the church and the state, and they're distinct, Uh, from each other. It's actually good that they're distinct, and they both have a level of authority that's been delegated to them by Almighty God. And we see this all throughout Scripture, that there are governmental authorities. And and in the Old Testament, God would use pagan governments and militaries to execute his will in many, many times. And he would often send uh, prophets from Israel to actually prophesy to uh, foreign leaders. And then often they would respond, and either it was a prophecy of correction or direction to accomplish God's will. So, as Christians and in Scripture, we value religious freedom and liberty of conscience. By the way, if you go to that website, you can click through and uh, the pages and pages that explain each one of these principles in great depth i'm just going to summarize cuz i only have 35 minutes and the clock is ticking all right so the freedom of a religion and conscience is is hardwired into our constitution into our into the foundation of our nation now christianity is not pluralist okay the word pluralist means that there's a multitude of options all right and, and a true pluralism is like, you know, pick and choose, it's your choice, there's freedom. Christianity is not pluralist. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the Nicene Creed, stick around. We read it out loud once a month just to reaffirm. Okay? We believe that there's one truth. Jesus is the way, not a way. Jesus is the truth, not a truth. And no one comes to the end of life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. All right? Jesus Christ by whom we are saved. Yet yeah, we live in a pluralistic society, okay? In a country where there's a right to diversity and views about life and, and issues. And that's actually something to be celebrated. Listen, I have been in, in many nations where there that is not allowed. Where you must... Uh, You must agree to the official belief or else you can be imprisoned or executed. And that's 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 an atmosphere of fear and control. And we live in a nation where we believe in freedom. And that includes religious freedom. And so we live in a country that's pluralistic, but we cling to a faith that's not pluralistic. All right, that is that we believe in one truth. And God, this kind of uh, uh, parallels a parable that Jesus told about God allowing the weeds and the wheat to grow together. And this is found in Matthew thirteen twenty four. Here's another story Jesus told: the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer. The kingdom of heaven is just one way uh, you can interpret it and apply it to different things. But Jesus is saying the principles of God's rule. Uh, this is how God works. <clears throat> This is what the kingdom is about. This is what it means to be under the rule of Jesus. Uh, he says, this is a comparison. It's like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. Oops. Um, but at that night, as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where, where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer ex- explained. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Uh, let both grow until, uh, together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them in the bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat into the barn. And so this principle that God allows the good and the bad to grow together is, is really rooted in Scripture. But there will be a day where there will be judgment, and God will sort out But we won't. but he doesn't do that you know, while the plants are still growing, all right? Because in doing that, it would uproot the whole system. And, and, and I could talk for hours about what that means, how it applies, but this is the world we live in. There's weeds growing, all right? Don't let the weeds uh, choke out uh, your root system. Be rooted in the Lord Jesus. So as we pray, as we vote, as we engage in community, uh, we, like Jesus, must allow religious freedom. Right? Don't, be, don't be frightened by that. Uh, be blessed by that. We, we allow liberty of conscience. conscience, But we pray that everyone would encounter Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord. You know, that's that's where, where we step in and we're no longer just uh, representing our political viewpoints and engaging in society and voting and, and participating in that way, but we step into our, our role as ambassadors for Jesus Christ to convince people to give their heart to the Lord Jesus and speak to their heart issues. That's what we hope. But in the meantime, we allow that, that breadth of conscience and breadth of religious express, expressions that we may not personally agree, that we may think are is contrary to Scripture and may be genu- genuinely very contrary to Scripture, but in our society, it's pluralistic, and that's a good thing. Amen? So that's number one. Number two, safeguarding the nature and sanctity of human life. Uh, this is very, very, very important. I'm going to head it myself God created human beings in his image and every human life from conception to death bears the image of God and has incredible worth. Every life from conception to death has worth and value. And in fact, there's no one that is more valuable And there's no one that is less valuable to God. And if that's true to God, then it must be true if we are calling ourselves uh, uh, children of God. So regardless of a person's beliefs or stance, what they look like, whether they're able or disabled, whether they're beautiful or not so beautiful, whether they're brilliant or or, or not so brilliant, whether <laughs> they talk like us or don't talk like us, look like us or don't look like us, all of that doesn't matter when you evaluate their value. Okay? Because their value is based on the value God determines, and the value God determined. Was the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for them while they were still enemies? While we were enemies of Christ, He died for us. And so that value is is true and valid regardless of our response to that. Now we're called we don't you can't experience the benefit of God's valuing you if you're in rebellion to him but he still values you enough to die for you, to bri- provide a way for you to come into relationship with him. So we value the life of every, every person. Christians must be committed to a consistent... <laughs> that wasn't tongues. That was stretching my, stretching my tongue. <laughs> that was tongues. Christians must be committed to a consistent ethic. That protects life at all stages with special concern for the most vulnerable, the unborn, the very young, the elderly, those living in poverty, the chronically or terminally ill, those with disability, and those with genetic diseases, uh, diseases that were caused beyond, you know, because of no uh, be, uh, wrong behavior. But even those who are sick because of poor choices. Uh, we, we need to care. We ha- need to have an ethic of pre- valuing that life regardless. And they deserve our, our care and our concern and our protection. Now, of course, abortion is the most familiar and most drastic uh, assault on the sanctity of human life. Um, I'm very careful. I'm very, very clear in my stance concerning abortion, but I'm very careful whenever I dr- address the issue of abortion, I'm just going to touch on it. I don't like to just touch on it because it is such a, uh, um, a devastating experience for those who have experienced that. And and folks, uh, statistically, one in three women in America have had an abortion, all right? And I have sat with women who for decades and really for the rest of their life grieve that choice and, and bear the burden of that. I have been with uh, uh, known men <clears throat> whose uh, girlfriend uh, or, or, or partner uh, had an abortion, some of them without their knowledge, and for the rest of their life, they grieve that. So I know how sensitive this topic is for many people. It's not something I speak of without concern for those who have struggled with the pain of it. But as a Christian and in Scripture, <clears throat> we see that God calls individuals and has a care for those individuals from the womb. Psalm 139, 13, this is just a couple of scriptures. It says, you you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So it says that God was active in utero, forming us. Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So God compares the majesty and the wonder of creating the heavens and creating the earth to the wonder of creating life in the womb. It's all a miraculous part of God's creation. And and birthing a child is one uh, opportunity that humans have to participate in the creative act with God. So it's a it's a sacred place. And abortion violates that sacred place and the sacred act of creation. Each life lost is a unique creation and made in God's image who might have blessed our society in ways we can't even imagine. And I believe that as Christ followers, we need to advocate for life Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I think Jesus is pro-life. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and all throughout Scripture and all of Jesus' teaching, he tells us that caring for life doesn't stop at birth. And uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a great story. It's found in Luke chapter 10. It says, one day an expert in religious law, so this is a religious person, And a legalist, a law person. That's like two bad combinations, man. (laughs) Uh, Stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should uh, I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? How do you understand it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. You got it, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. The man, wanting to justify his actions, looking for a way around the rules, right? Asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied uh, with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him for dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. He was a priest. He had to go preach a sermon, right? He was busy, busy man, busy man for God. A temple assistant, another religious worker, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Uh, I don't want to get involved in that. Probably some homeless guy. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and, and again, for those of you who don't know the uh, biblical background, Samaritans were considered unclean. Uh, 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 there was a racial division, and they were the the untouchables uh, to Jews. And so, a Jew was actually forbidden actually to to speak or to to engage with in relationship in any sense with a Samaritan. They were considered half breeds and heretics and all that. But this Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion on him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, and put medication on them and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper silver coins. so He paid for the health care of someone he didn't even know, telling him, take care of him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll cover the deductible. I'll pay you the next time I'm here. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who attacked by the the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. What does it mean to be a neighbor? It means to care for those who are different than you, who are in need, regardless of their ethnicity, of their social standing, of of how much it will inconvenience you. You know what? If someone has a need to be a good neighbor, you care for that need, right? And this is ultimately uh, shown by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. He didn't just die for his friends. Actually, at that point, all of his friends had abandoned him. He died for every man, woman, and child. He died while we were still enemies of him. He gave everything he had to care for the least, to care for whoever would respond. And so Jesus not only taught it, but he lived it. And he demonstrated it in the ultimate way by dying on the cross to rescue each and every person that responds by faith to him. uh, by believing that he died for their sins and accepting him as Lord and Savior to rescue them and to care for them. You know, salvation means uh, being made whole. It it involves the idea not only of rescue from sin, but from sickness and from the influence of Satan. And so Jesus is the good neighbor that is caring for us. And as Christ uh, followers, we need to care for those in our community that have need. So... uh, I missed it, a slide, sorry. As we pray for, vote, and engage in our community, we need to ask, how can we best protect the value and sanctity of human life? Listen to that. As we pray for, vote, and engage in our community, how can we protect those who are most vulnerable? Yes, the unborn, but also the disadvantaged and the oppressed. Uh, How can we care for those? How can we uh, 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 support those in political positions and, and political issues that, rep- that reproduce or represent this value that we find so clear throughout Scripture and the life and teaching of Jesus Christ? Okay, number three, strengthening marriage, family, and children. <laughs> throughout Scripture, Bible, uh, the Bible is very clear about this, that family is central to God's vision, for the life of individuals as well as society. Right at creation, God created, uh, established uh, marriage and family at the center of, of, of the human existence. And Genesis 1, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so uh, we best reflect the image of God both as male and female, in that union of marriage, the fullest expression, the most uh, clear expression of the image of God being created in that image. And a little bit further down, is Genesis chapter 2, 23, Adam said this is, this is after uh, the story kind of uh, expands a little bit and we see how God formed Eve out of the uh, rib taken out of Adam's side. Adam sees Eve for the first time, <clears throat> He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and wife, and were not ashamed. Jesus quotes this passage in the New Testament, as well as uh, Paul in the the epistles. And so this passage passage is often referred to, actually all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, to uh, defend and explain the design that God has for mankind to live in a state of marriage, okay, between a man and a, and a woman, because that's how we were created to represent God. And, and the prophet, uh, it's, it's many places, but this one I, I find most powerful, Malachi, this is the last prophet of the Old Testament, um, it says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. Okay, and so it's an, uh, this is an expression of being uh, uh, the Lord's property that he created us, he owns us, and we serve him with our whole body. And part of that means being joined with our uh, wife uh, in both body and spirit. It's a physical union as well as a spiritual union. And what does he want? What's God's intention out of this uh, union? Godly children, not just children. You can produce children. Any two, uh, a man and a woman can produce children. Did you know that? It's it's actually quite easy. You don't even have to teach them. You know, they they think you have to teach them, but kids know it before you teach them, it's like, Someone just told me how do, you get, how do you make more rabbits with two rabbits in a, a closet? You know, a male and female rabbit, and they figure it out. <laughs> so, but godly children—that word is very important. The godly, the adjective there that gives definition to the, the type of children God wants. In other words, the best way uh, to uh, the best way to have an environment where where children can grow into becoming godly individuals is in a a, a godly marriage, all right? So guard your heart, the word of the Lord says, and remain loyal to the wife of your youth. It's very, very important. Family life uh, reveals something of the nature of God. Uh, Human families mirror, however faintly, that relational love that we find in the Trinity and, and certainly, childless couples, uh, single-parent families, they're just as valuable. Each person is just as valuable to God, all right? We're not talking about value. We're not talking about worth. We're talking about what is the best environment for a child to grow into a healthy adult that then can parent children and and, and lay the, the foundation for the next generation, Listen, I'm telling you, it's homes where there's a mother and a father. Ideally, with the husband, the man, and the wife, the woman, living as godly examples, both as individuals and as a couple. And in that context, the child who represents and is the next generation can see how life works, but when there's not both the husband and wife, the man and the woman that the child as uh, comes to then there's a deficit there, and yes, God can compensate and and you know in our in our society, um, I think it's about half of children uh, grow up in homes without their uh, both biological parents and probably more than that now. So yes, God can redeem that. Thankful. Thankfully that he can redeem that. But this is a principle that this is what we strive for. This is what we fight for. This is why marriage is worth fighting for, because it sets the standard for the next generation. It leaves an inheritance. Um, We believe in the historical orthodox position of the church, that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that is that that was God's intention from the beginning, and it is God's best for each individual. Uh, although we, make, we do grieve and repent for any ungodly way that we may have treated those in the LGBTQ plus homosexual, I don't know what the best term to use for that, gay homosexual community, those uh, individuals that are uh, living uh, in that uh, lifestyle, we need to treat them with love and respect because god loves them and and we and we treat each individual with dignity and so we, we grieve how uh, christians have mistreated and maligned and used hurtful words and behaviors toward those in that lifestyle nevertheless nevertheless we hold fast to the truth of scripture that is consistent throughout of the goodness of, of, of marriage in the biblical design the way that God uh, intended it. Actually, it's in the sharing and sacrifice of the biblical family life um, that we learn so much. And, 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 it, and that, that, that life in the context of a family as, as depicted in Scripture, as, and, and I, I, agree, I agree, I know that it's the ideal and I don't know anyone that's lived the in the ideal family, right? <laughs> you know, um, often when I uh, meet with families, it, it usually comes up in, in preparations for funerals as they're kind of explaining the family dynamic. And I, I think it's in every family of every funeral I've ever done, we, we meet with the family beforehand to plan things out. And at, at some point, people will say, because they're saying, oh, you need to be careful of uncle so-and-so, or, oh, boy, this person, and they just look and say, really, our our family's a a soap opera. And I always look at it, every funeral I've I've had this, and often in in weddings, too, because it's like, be careful of Aunt Susie because she's really sensitive, um, or whatever. And I just smile and say, listen, every family is that way. You just don't know it. If I were to tell you all the dynamics of my family, you would be shocked, okay? We don't have time for that. <laughs> it's a soap opera, man, I'm you, And it's still going on. <laughs> but we, uh, <clears throat> the sharing and sacrifice of a biblical family life stands in contrast to an overemphasis on personal freedom. Personal freedom is important. But you know what? In a family, you have to sacrifice your personal freedom and your rights. You learn that in the context of family. Marriage, sexuality, uh, biblical sexuality, and family life are fundamental to healthy societies. And whether you're married or single, it's in families that you best learn mutual responsibility, how to live together um, with our commonness as well as our distinctions, the things that we have in common and the things that we have different. We learn the give and take of living together of love and trust and justice and mercy of denying yourself for the sake of others and the well-being of others so 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 family is essential to society and it's essential i think it's it's way more important to god than politics or or other agendas it's it's the family and and as christ followers we need to value and protect so as we vote as we pray, as we engage in our community, strive to uphold biblical definition of the covenant of marriage, biblical sexuality, and the sanctity of this thing called family, while humbly recognizing that other people are going to be in disagreement. And and don't react, don't be defensive. Actually honor that religious freedom, that freedom of conscience that other people are going to have uh, different decisions and make different choices. In the end, we trust that God's will will prevail. And as we live it out as examples, we best uh, enable that example to be demonstrated, right? So take care of your own house before you judge someone else's. Everybody say amen. Okay. (laughs) Number four, seeking justice. And compassion for the poor and the vulnerable. Jesus summed up, um, sorry, Jesus summed up God's law by commanding us to love God with all uh, we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's a great commandment, right? Treating others justly is evidence of being motivated by love. In other words, you treat others with justice, it's because you love them. You treat them. Fairly. All right. Justice, most Christians don't understand this. Most most uh, people that study the Bible miss this completely. I don't know how they miss it, but justice is the main theme of Scripture. You know, every book has a theme. If you write a paper, there's a theme, there's a, 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 a primary uh, idea that's being communicated through the whole of the Thesis, the whole of the uh, document or the whole of the book or the whole of the story. What's the, what's the main point of the story? Listen, the main point of the story of the Bible is justice. Now don't be sidetracked when people put a word on there like social justice or, or other type of justice, you know that and then twist the, the meaning of that. Justice treating people, with equity and fairness and with truth and right, righteousness. Actually, the word righteous is rooted in justice. Okay? You can't have righteousness. You can't be right without being just. The Bible, uh, the story of the Bible starts out with mankind being created by a loving God, but then violating that love of God, violating God's character, His values, His law by sinning against Him and one another. And it describes the consequences of the injustice of those acts in the individual's lives, in their families, in nations, and throughout generations. So all those stories of catastrophe and wars and devastation as a result of sin is teaching us that living in, in, in injustice or acting in an unjust way has consequences. And then the story uh, um, uh, continues in the New Testament and actually concludes in the act of God justifying all who respond. Why did Jesus die on, their, on the cross? For our justification to make mankind who were not just, to make them just, to make them right. And how did he do it? By an act of justification that the justice of God was revealed on the cross in taking upon himself the penalty and the payment for our sin and offering to us, if we bow our knee and confess faith to him, forgiveness of our sin he demonst- god demonstrated his justice by offering us forgiveness but by paying the price all right and so salvation is stepping into the justice of god and that then demands that we live in a a, a lifestyle that is just throughout scripture there's countless 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 Uh, 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 verses about justice, Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, speak up, get involved, say something for those who don't have a voice, for those who are appointed to die in an unjust way. This is God's word to God's people. Open your mouth, judge righteously. Righteously. Every time you see the word judge, it's, based, it's, it's use justice in an appropriate way. And plead the cause of the poor and needy. Proverbs 22, do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. All right, so in other words, when someone takes advantage of someone because they're poor, And that's a relative term because they don't have as much influence financially, politically, physically, emotionally. If they're disadvantaged in any way and someone takes advantage of that, you know who's going to defend them? God! Why? Because He is just. I believe with my whole heart that somehow when Christ returns... Somehow, I have no idea how this could possibly happen, but every act of injustice is somehow going to be compensated. Yes, we're forgiven of our sins, but Jesus comes to restore all things. And we're going to see that. A couple other scriptures, Isaiah, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. And of course, Micah 6, 8, uh, Pastor Bill's, uh, favorite verse, I think, right? <laughs> he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. This is all throughout the Old Testament, but we also find it in the teachings of Jesus. And this is this is this is a strong teaching of the Lord Jesus about what's going to happen when He returns. Let me read through this quickly. Matthew twenty-five: When the Son of Man comes in His glory, listen, folks this is a descriptive uh, uh, this is what's really going to happen okay but he's using imagery but somehow this is actually going to happen you're going to experience this all right i'm going to experience this and jesus is using words that you know people can understand so how it actually looks i don't know but this is this is as this is exactly as truthfully as it's going to happen and we're going to experience it It says when jesus comes back when the son of man comes in all of his glory and his angels with him there he will sit on the throne of his glory all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats in other words this is going to get down it's going to involve nations but it's going to get right down to the individual you're going to approach jesus and he's going to decide whether you're a sheep or a goat And the righteous will answer saying, wait a minute, God, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When, when did we see you a stranger and, and take you in or naked and clothe you? They weren't even consciously aware that they were doing it to the Lord. Or when did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will say to him, them, uh, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you've did it to the least of these, my brethren, you've, did it, you've done it to me. In other words, how we treat those who are in need and suffering is how we treat the Lord Jesus and is the basis on how we will be judged. And we will give, we will need to give a response to the Lord Jesus and it will determine whether or not we are a sheep or a goat. All right? Now, that, how does that work with being forgiven? Well, listen, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, you're forgiven of all your sin. That's washed away. But then he calls you to follow him, to walk like him, to live like him. And so your salvation has to be demonstrated through acts of mercy and justice. And we need to live and we need to pray and we need to vote and we need to engage in our community in a way that makes biblical justice a standard that we hold ourselves to personally. And we also seek and demand of our elected officials.